Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan goes live with Instagram and Facebook to discuss what's going on in the Middle East, how we should view Israel, the end times, and the idea of judgment. Enjoy. There's a lot happening in the world right now, and there's a lot happening this week in particular uh, around Israel. And as these apocalyptic themes continue to come up that are very near and dear to my heart, I do think these are apocalyptic times. The word apocalypse uh, means to reveal, and these are revealing times. I think lots of things are being revealed. First and foremost, our own hearts are being revealed. And I guess the thing that that is kind of pushing me forward tonight in particular is um, I just continue to be struck by this dynamic. And I hope, you know, some of you know me well, some of you don't. But for those who don't know me, I hope you'll hear my heart here because, you know, I'm just not feeling anything judgmental or angry. I want to be as, as gentle as I can be because I, I have sincere empathy here. I'm a, I'm a product of the church. I love the church. Uh, I've never been more in love with Jesus than I am right now in this moment. I love Jesus. I love the gospel. I want everybody that I know to know Jesus and to know the hope of the gospel. I am just in such a good place heart-wise with, with, with God and what he's doing in my life. And yet the thing that continues to break my heart is I feel like I'm constantly connecting with people who have this deep love for God, have had some kind of a profound encounter with Jesus. And if you watch how they live in their daily, regular lives, they they display not just the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. They are kind. They are gracious. They are generous. Uh, they're loving to friends and even people who are strangers or might be outsiders in some way, like, like genuinely caring people. And I see gentleness in them. I see tenderness in them. I see all the things that go along with having a transformed life. And yet, even with these beautiful lives, even with these transformed lives, at the same time alongside of that, I see theology that's not beautiful at all. People who I know to be loving people, but who have a theological framework that doesn't allow them to love the world well. It breaks my heart when something happens like what happened in Gaza the other day. And Christians somehow see this still as evangelical Christians, to be more particular, white Christians in North America still think of this as white hats and black hats. And this is God's people against the bad people and even have a way of cheering on death, destruction. So many of these things that that just grieve me to my core. But I know that people are doing the best that they can with the deck that's been dealt to them. And I know that they're trying to be faithful to God and to scripture. I know that a lot of these things come from a sincere place. So let me start here and then we'll get into some scripture. I'm wondering for those of you who like me have a deep background, either in an evangelical church, uh, a Pentecostal church, charismatic church, whoever. I'm wondering if there's some of you who since you have been awakened to the goodness of God and to the grace of God, you've experienced God's love in a transformative way. 
Do you ever struggle with the sense of dissonance that what you believe to be true about the grace of God and the love of God that's fully revealed in Christ Jesus, does it quite seem to line up with how you've been told that the, the, the story of the end of the world in particular works? When people talk about revelation, when they talk about apocalyptic themes, do you ever wrestle with that? Do you ever wrestle with the idea that Jesus comes in a first century context? And we as Christians believe that the full revelation of God is Jesus on that cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And everything about the, the teaching of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, when we're taught to bless our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, when we're uh, taught to turn the other cheek, um, everything that we see modeled in the life of Jesus, especially in the cross, that's how he comes. And yet... There's this idea that when Jesus comes again, this time he comes back as Dirty Harry. You know, uh, the, the, the meekness of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross somehow didn't work. So since that didn't work, now Jesus comes and he uses the weapons of the world to overcome the evil of the world because he's going to come back and he's going to have the bigger sword, right? And, and there's this there's this cognitive dissonance of how is it that we believe these things to be true about the king and the kingdom, and yet the the end of the story it's it's got this pin the tail pin the tail on the donkey kind of quality to it like it's like an ending from another story that's been imported to it. I, I want to speak to that dissonance because my sense is that I think people who know Jesus well, I think people who are prayerful people who have had a radical encounter with God, intuitively they know that there's something wrong with that story. Intuitively they know that there's something wrong with cheering bloodshed for any enemies when the God revealed in Christ tells us to bless her. And intuitively they know this is not right. Intuitively they know that this is not a story of good guys against bad guys anymore. Intuitively they know that this is not, this is just not how the love of God conquers over the world. But again, the theological framework is so constricted. I was doing a podcast this week. My friend Brian's on. Got a podcast right now called Son of a Preacher Man. We did an episode just the other day where we talked a little bit about um, our own awakening. In particular, we both had read a book. Uh, actually, I think about the same time, ironically enough, that we didn't know each other then. We both read Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy. And it changed our lives because for the first time we encountered uh, the, the Jesus message about the kingdom of God which is a little scary when you don't discover that until well into your 20s, because the kingdom of God is the central proclamation of Jesus on the earth. Everywhere he goes when he's preaching and teaching, what he preaches is the gospel of the kingdom. And so many of us, I think, have sat in churches where we've never heard about the kingdom of God, certainly never heard the phrase the gospel of the kingdom, have no idea what that's about. But, you know, when the kingdom began to be opened up to me for the first time, it, it, it changed the whole trajectory of how I think about God and how I think about faith. Because up until that point in my life, everything I believed about God, everything I believed about how Christians are supposed to relate to the world, everything that I believed about end times, eschatology, the end of days, was all about me going up. It was all about God snatching us up out of the mess before all the really bad stuff hits the fan. It's as if the Lord's Prayer were, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be that name, beam me up, Scotty, right? But it doesn't say beam me up, Scotty. The prayer that Christians have been praying for 2,000 years is that kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the crucial shift. And this is getting to the whole deal about Israel and times, all this. If you don't catch anything else that I talk about, this might be the subject I am most passionate about in the world. If you don't hear anything else, the, the, the key switch for me is that a theology that was all about me going up all of a sudden was flipped upside down to where the, the focus of my theology, the focus of how I thought about God, life and the world moved from going up to going down that one simple movement Thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's the movement? The kingdom comes down. What do we see in Revelation 21 and 22? The new Jerusalem comes down to where the day will come in which there is no distinction between the new heaven and the new earth. The, the reign and rule of God that originates from heaven is now spilling into the earth. This is the same thing that the prophet Isaiah talks about when he talks about the day that will come when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth the ways the water covers the sea. That's what we're anticipating. That's what we're looking forward to. But when you don't believe that where this whole story is going is with the kingdom coming down, and if you don't believe that the nature of the kingdom is somehow consonant with the character of the king himself, then it gives you permission to develop a very different kind of story. Because if the goal is for we as Christians to be rescued, if the goal is not to remake the earth, but to escape the earth, then it's very easy for us to buy part and parcel into a way of thinking about the world in which our ultimate hope, hope and goal is that somehow God is going to vindicate us over against our enemies, or especially to make the, bring things full circle, what's happening this week, that God is going to vindicate Israel over and against her enemies. That's so often where these things go. But let me take you back, and I'm, I'm sorry, I hope this doesn't feel all over the place, but I want to lay a big foundation here. Some of you can stay for a few minutes, some of you, you know, longer. I will go as long as y'all feel like it, because I'm, I'm feeling locked up about this tonight. Go back to the beginning of the story. The whole story of Scripture, the whole story of God, hinges on, on one particular thing, that God comes to a man named Abraham, and he makes a covenant with him. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your nation great. You're going to be the father of many sons. We like to sing about that in Sunday school. Father Abraham, many sons. Many sons said, Father Abraham, I'm one of them. So are you. Let's nod our heads. Praise the Lord, whatever. Father of many sons. But what's the purpose of this? God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make your nation great so that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, lest you think I'm reading something into the text, go back if you need to, to your Bibles, to Genesis 12, in any translation, and tell me if you can find a word other than all. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is an important hinge point. Anything good God ever did for Israel, ultimately was for the sake of the entire world. I cannot stress this loudly or long enough. John Hagee's not telling you this. Tim LaHaye's not telling you this. Jerry Jenkins isn't telling you this. Um, Pat Robertson is not telling you this. And I'm not trying to throw shade at anybody. A lot of my wonderful charismatic friends are not telling you this. Anything good God ever did for Israel ultimately was for the sake of the world. It wasn't exclusive pet, right? And that somehow this blessing was an exclusive one uh, so that God saves a, a few or an elect, like a, like a handful. It's rather God profoundly blesses the few for the sake of the many. 
God raises up one nation. So in the language of Genesis 12, ultimately the light of all nations could come. This is the movement of the entire story. Anything good, I'll use a phrase from my good friend, Dr. Chris Green. Anything good that God ever does, anything that God ever does for the elect is for the sake of the non-elect. Anything that God does for the chosen is for the sake of the outsiders, for those that don't feel chosen. Um, when you read a story, even like Jacob and Esau, don't you guys ever struggle with this? We love that God is so good to Jacob in all of his messiness. I love that. I, I'm thankful that God is good to me in my messiness. But, you know, I don't know anybody who reads that story who really goes away like feeling awesome about Jacob. You end up feeling really bad for Esau. It's like, okay, so this one moment of weakness where you sell your birthright and now you're left out forever. But see, that's the thing. What God does for Jacob ultimately will be Esau's hope as well. What God does for the chosen is going to be for the sake of the left out. And this is the, this is the movement of the entire story of Scripture, is that what God does for the insiders, his inside people in Israel, is to raise up Jesus of Nazareth, who will go to the cross for the sake of the outsider. Read it in the book of Hebrews. He himself is crucified outside the gate. Anything good God ever did for the insider is for the sake of the outsiders. Y'all tracking me so far? Are we good? So keep that in mind. So the story that begins with the hinge point in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That story ends in the book of Revelation where yes, there's language of divine judgment. And I'm going to go there in just a couple moments, but keep in mind the beautiful image that we get when the new Jerusalem actually comes, the city of the new Jerusalem actually comes down. The river of life runs through the city. And it says specifically that the river of life is for the healing of the nations, plural, the healing of the nations. In fact, here's a provocative image for you that maybe I'll unpack more in a few minutes. In Revelation 19, all the enemies of God, those that make war with the lamb, are seem to be discarded into the lake of fire. And yet we get this image in Revelation 21, where on the other side of that, this same language that John has been using like a mantra to describe the enemies of God, the nations and the kings of the earth, the nations and the kings of the earth, the nations and the kings of the earth. Now we get this image in Revelation 21 to where that same phrase is used, that nations and kings of the earth are actually entering into the city where the gates are never shut. So apparently somehow in some way, even those that seem to be on the wrong side of this judgment, are, are, now there's this image, provocative image, and uh, I'm not saying all are saved in the end. That's, I may address that in a couple minutes too. But the point is that even those who are outsiders and enemies, all the way to the, to the bitter end, seem to be welcomed in to this kingdom. Here's my point for right now before this gets, I get, I get the cart way ahead of the horse. Anything good that God ever did for Israel as a nation was for the healing of all nations. And that's where I think, especially in a week like this one, we need to hit the pause button on some things. Do we really believe, first of all, I would want to contend, and I want to be gentle about this, but I, uh, I believe uh, on a personal level, this is not a theological conviction. Personally, I, I believe that Israel as a modern nation state has a right to exist. I do not believe that Israel as a contemporary secular nation state has any particular connection with Israel as the ancient people of God. That was the people first and foremost that were established on a theological identity. Uh, they were called by God. They were, uh, you know, uh, th this all connects back to Moses. We're talking now about a more or less secular modern nation state. Um, I, I don't think those stories are connected. Um, uh, it's, you know, uh, people who will oppose what I'm telling you right now will use language like they'll say, oh, they're teaching replacement theology. I, I don't believe that 
the covenant that God made with Israel is replaced at all. But what does happen is that the covenant that God made with Abraham, uh, the, the Gentiles, those who follow Jesus now, have been grafted in as part of that same covenant. It's not a replacement, but there's a grafting in to where the new Israel, that man, I'm, I'm feeling this right now. The new Israel is not defined by national borders. It's just not. The new Israel, the people of God, are wherever people, uh, the, the Jews or Christians, are inclined towards God. It's a religious posture. It's a spiritual posture. It's not that the land is not important, but the land is not everything. You know, there, there's a new Israel that's being established. There's a spiritual Israel that's being established that is, doesn't have anything to do with what borders you live in. Um, the, the same God who blessed Israel, you remember everything I talked about in terms of Jacob and Esau and the movement of the story, anything good that God ever did for the insiders was for the sake of the outsiders. That's true of Palestinians now. The blessing of God, the goodness of God, and especially if you ever go to the Middle East and you're actually with uh, Palestinian Christians, if you're with some of our Arab brothers and sisters, that will turn your life upside down. Uh, some of you know my, my mentor, uh, Sister Margaret Gaines uh, was a Church of God woman, this powerful missionary in the Middle East for many years, making those trips with Margaret, coming back and spending a lot of time in Lebanon, uh, really being all over the, the Middle East as an adult. All of that has so shifted my perspective, especially when you're around brothers and sisters in Christ who are on the ground. Any, I, I could take this so many different directions. Let's keep it simple for right now. So anything good God ever does for Israel ultimately is for the sake of the rest of the world. Now, Let's talk a little bit more broadly then for a moment about this whole issue of judgment, because I know what's happening is that a lot of you out there, and I'm saying this with deep pastoral sensitivity, not anger and accusation. A lot of you out there who do love Jesus and you love your neighbors and you're, you're good people, uh, sincerely endeavoring to honor God with everything that you do. Yet you've got a theological system still, right? where you believe that a certain kind of end times violence has to take place in order for God to accomplish his purposes and end the world. Remember when I was young, every once in a while, I would uh, come across Jack and Rexilla Van Impey on TV. Anybody ever seen Jackson, Jack and Rexilla Van Impey? Oh man, he talked like the micro machine guy, but it was lots of scripture, quoting scripture right and left. Just a footnote right here, the famous prophecy teacher, Perry Stone, who I've shared a stage with before, I've heard Perry talk about how he spent 40,000 hours studying Bible prophecy. Friends, if you spend 40,000 hours studying the flatness of the earth, doesn't matter how much time you put into it, if the framework is still wrong, and that's what I think happens with the end time business. You study it as long as you like. Study your charts and graphs as long as you like. If you get the frame story wrong, and what I'm telling you is that the contemporary end times folks have got the frame story all wrong. They're not understanding that the good that God did for Israel ultimately was for the sake of the whole world and for the healing of all nations. The frame story is wrong. They're not understanding that the Jesus who comes in the first century and is made known uh, flat on his back on the manger and then later again, the vulnerable God flat on his back on the cross, that that same Jesus, isn't that the phrase the angels use when he ascends? This same Jesus, this same Jesus is going to come again. It's the same story. It's the same Jesus. It's the same love. There has to be an essential continuity that's there. Has to be, right? He, surely he's not coming again like Dirty Harry. That would be a different story. See, here's the thing. I'm convinced that John in the book of Revelation 
is telling us the exact same story that the Gospels are telling us. It's telling us the exact same story that the epistles are telling us, telling us the exact same story that Paul is telling us. But what Revelation does is it tells us the same story from an aerial point of view. Can I get some digital amens out there? Is anybody feeling this? He tells the same, John gives us the same story from an aerial point of view. It is not a different story. What's the story that John is trying to tell? What's the story the Gospels are trying to tell? What is the story the epistles are trying to tell? The story is that God fully revealed in Christ, the word made flesh, very God and very man, as Irenaeus said, that this God sacrifices himself on the cross. And the way that God overcomes the forces of sin, death, and hell is through God's own sacrifice. The lamb conquers through his sacrifice. The lamb does not conquer through the violence of the world. The lamb does not conquer with carnal weapons. Something in the language of Galatians 3, something that is begun in the spirit cannot be completed in the flesh. What God does through the cross, the way that God is revealed to us in the cross, that is how God ultimately will overcome the forces of evil through his sacrifice. So what we get in the book of Revelation is a dramatization of that, right? So Revelation, which uses highly allegorical language, this is where I'm going to lose some of you, because some of you think that to say that a particular scripture is allegorical or that it's symbolic is to not take it seriously or to not believe that it's the word of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not the case at all. I believe that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. I, I believe in that. I, I believe that he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. I believe in miracles. I believe in miracles now, okay? So you're not talking to some hardcore theological liberal who's demythologizing the Bible. It's just that Revelation is a different genre of literature. It's apocalyptic literature, which means it speaks in a symbolic way. And what Revelation does is it co-ops the language of the Roman Empire. It uses Roman militaristic imagery. It uses violent imagery that would be common for the day to tell the story in dramatic terms of how God overcomes the world. But the, the surprise here, that right, the switch, the flip, is that God doesn't overcome the, the world through having a bigger weapon, but it's through a lamb standing as if slain. It's through a sacrifice, crucial movement in Revelation. There's a moment when John hears the sound and that what he hears in his ear is he hears, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He hears the sound of a lion, but then he turns and he looks. And what John sees when he looks is not a lion, but he sees a lamb standing as if slain. That's the message of the book of Revelation in a nutshell. Is it the God that we thought was a lion all along? Yes, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but his strength is not in his militaristic might. His strength is not in violence. His strength is not in human power. His strength is revealed in his sacrifice. The one that we were told is a lion was actually the lamb all along. Think about that story in the gospels where the disciples are rowing at night on the sea and Jesus begins walking out to them on the water. And when he does, they freak out. They think that he's a ghost. And it's not until he comes closer and they hear his voice that they see that this is Jesus. I truly believe that that's exactly how Christians have been reading the Bible for 2,000 years. 
we see this God from afar. We see this God from a distance. And we think that, this, that, that, that he's a ghost. We think that he's a monster. We think something to be frightened of until we get a little bit closer. And we see that the God that's revealed, this is Jesus. This is the Lamb of God. It's been the Lamb all along. It was always the Lamb. It's the Lamb who will overcome in the end. Even when you get to that climactic battle scene in the book of Revelation, have you ever noticed this? It, it builds up to this great fight scene. And then there's not really a fight because when in Revelation 19, Jesus rides out on a white horse, what does the text say? He's wearing a robe that's been dipped in blood. It's not the blood of his enemies that his robe is dipped in. Anybody hear what I'm saying? It's his own blood. The blood on his robe is his own blood. It's from his own sacrifice. This is how God overcomes. This is how love overcomes. This is how love wins. This has always been the way that's worked. Can you see when you think about it that way, just how much in common the story of Jesus has with any story of saints or martyrs, or even a story like the story of Martin Luther King? Through death, through sacrifice, the reign of God is inaugurated in the earth. That's how God's victory comes, not through strength, not through military power, but through sacrifice. Um, I, I know I'm pushing some buttons right here, but I, I, I want you to see some parallels you might not have seen before. To say that somehow that God can or will use the violence of the world or use human weapons to accomplish God's purposes is to me not unlike when um, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they accuse him of casting out Satan by the spirit of Satan. You remember that? They say that, oh, oh, you can cast out Beelzebub because you have the spirit of Beelzebub. What does Jesus say? He says that Satan cannot cast out Satan. Satan can't cast out Satan. You can't use the devil's tools. This is important now. You can't use the devil's tools to beat the devil. You can't use the devil's weapons to beat down the devil. That's not how it works. <laughs> There, there is no weapon. There is no weapon other than love that can win the day. Now, don't get me wrong. And I said I was going to talk about judgment a bit. I do believe in a God who judges. But how does God judge? That same passage I was talking about, Revelation 19, where we say Jesus on the white horse that's been dipped and is wearing the robe that's been dipped in his own blood. Think about this part. Revelation 19 says, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And I think that means that there's a literal sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus that like and his, and his head is thrashing around no it's not a literal sword coming out of the mouth of jesus any more than jesus is a literal lamb if you pray to jesus and he talks back to you you're not going to hear him say bye right that's not or that's not how he responds to me it's an image right it's a metaphor what does it mean to say that out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations that god will judge the creation in the same way god will call creation to account the same way that God spoke creation into existence, by his word. Do you hear what I'm saying? God will judge the creation. God will call creation into account the same way he spoke creation into existence, by his word. So what you're not getting there is a God who somehow overcomes the forces of sin, hell, death, and the grave because he's got a bigger weapon, because that's just not how it works. No, the, the image that we get of Jesus on the cross is the definitive one for those of us who are Christians. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. That's Jesus on the cross. That's the heart of the church. That's the heart we're supposed to have for our own enemies. Um, that, that is the posture of the church to our enemies. I like to say it like this sometimes. The only reason that we as Christians ever have a reason to identify our enemies is to figure out who to bless. Because that's what we're told to do. We're told to bless our enemies. If people persecute us, we're told to pray for them. If we're struck, we're told to turn the other cheek. So many people minimize and mitigate 
what is really the heart and center of Jesus' teaching, which is this idea of nonviolent sacrificial love. Folks, this is not peripheral. This is, the, this is the heart of the message. This is the heart of the gospel. This is why I think it's so important that when things happen in the world, like what we've experienced last week, that we're not cheering on violence, rah, 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 because we're called to be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. To pray for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray for peace Jews and Palestinians, not to pray for their destruction. That, that was the thing that always struck me when I would watch Jack Van Impey back in the day. It's like, okay, thousands of people have just died in some massive tragedy. And we're like cheering it on like, yay, this means Jesus is going to come back faster. See, that brings it back to the stuff I was trying to tell you guys at the beginning. The emphasis of the story was not on remaking the world, but escaping the world. But if the goal, if the telos is... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If the kingdom is coming down, I can't push it hard enough. Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem comes down. If the kingdom's coming down and the king is coming to establish his reign and rule here, right? Then what we're supposed to be praying for and looking for is not our own escape, but, but, but whether we're looking for the redemption of the world. We're looking for the world to be remade. We want when Christ does return. We want these colonies of the kingdom of heaven that are already set up where something of the peace of God, the shalom of God, the rule of God, the goodness of God is already established in the world. We've got these like welcoming committees that are already set up. And when you see the way that we're living with our neighbors and the way that we're loving our enemies, you get a foretaste of what the kingdom is supposed to look like now. That's what the gospel looks like. I haven't had time to deal with a lot of comments since I'm doing Instagram and Facebook at the same time that Ken Tanner, my good friend, Bishop Tanner, who said there's no judgment. Jesus, as he prepares to go to Calvary, says now is the judgment of this world. See, that's it. What we see on Calvary is, is the judgment of God. But it works in this really counterintuitive way because ultimately what we see on display on the cross is that through what we did to Jesus, we see our own deceit, we see our own violence, we see our own evil on full display in the crucifixion of the innocent one, in the slaughter of God's anointed we do see the judgment of God poured out on that cross. But because with that judgment has already been revealed through Calvary, you know, we're, we're not in the business of judging our enemies now. We're in the business of loving our enemies, blessing them, because we want to see redemption, restoration, and reconciliation for all people. And I just can't stress this enough, and I'm not trying to overtalk a thing, but intuitively, so many of you know this. So many of you have already seen this. You're already sensing this in some level. You know, I, I see like the way that um, I, I see the way that uh, Christian moms and dads, the unconditional love that they'll display for their own children. And, and even uh, again, the random acts of kindness, even to strangers could not even conceive of, uh, of, of being as violent or as vindictive as, uh, as, as the God that they might preach and they thought like they're being faithful to. How is it possible that somehow this God is not at least as nice as the nicest person that you know? How is it that you think that you could have the capacity to love your own kids better than God loves us? I do believe in judgment, but I believe in, in, in that, that our good God is the judge. And for that matter, something else that maybe is worth saying right here, judgment, especially in light of the God revealed in Christ on the cross, God's judgment is never about, it, it's, not, it's not about retribution. God's judgment is not about retribution. God's judgment is about restoration. That's why we as Christians should welcome the judgment of God. You know, it took me a long time 
for my understanding of God to broaden and deepen enough to where I could pray that prayer. These days, I actually welcome the judgment of God. And I don't always like what I see and what I hear. But I've come to trust that God's judgment, because I know God's judgment is never about punking me down. God's judgment is ultimately always about restoring, reconciling, mending. It's not a thing to be feared. It's a thing to be welcomed. Because the judgment of God sets things right. That's what God's judgment does. That's what God, I believe, will do in the end. He'll be setting things right. And God will do what God has to do to set things right. And to be clear, I do believe that there's some things that are so broken in the world that the only way that they can be reconciled and restored is when the King of Glory comes to do it himself. I do believe that. But don't miss the big picture. It is about restoration. It is about reconciliation. You know, I think if there's been any central revelation in the Pentecostal charismatic movement in the last 20 or 30 years. And, you know, for all the things that people say about our songs being shallow or something, I really do think this is good. How many songs are we singing in church now like Good, Good Father? You know, that's a beautiful, my friend Pat Barrett wrote that song. I love that song. You've got all these songs about the love of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God. He's a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. I'm loved by you. It's who I am. We're singing these songs. And I think especially for those of us kind of within that tradition, what we've got to really wrestle with now is if, if we're singing this, if this is in our hymnody, what does it look like to really practice this to the world? Is God only a good, good father to us? Is God only a good father to the people who are at the conference who are singing the song? <laughs> or do we believe that, this, that God is a good father to all? Do we believe that God will be merciful to our enemies the way that God has been merciful to us? I'm saying so many things. Thank you for bearing with me. But I tell you, one of the things I've been chewing on a lot these days and that I'm struggling with, but but it's challenging me in all the right ways. You know, whenever we think about people that we think of as being enemies or uh, people that bother us or disturb us, we always think, uh, even if we're being pious about it, well, I need to get my heart right because my enemies need the Jesus in me. What I'm coming to see more and more is that it's not so much that my enemies need the Jesus in me. Maybe that's true. But I, I need the Christ in them because God uses my enemy to sanctify me. And is that preaching with anybody? The people I don't like, I need them to sanctify me. The people that annoy me, the people that I would condemn, the people who I would say are unworthy. God uses otherness to transform us and to sanctify us, right? So am I going in way too many different directions, guys? Just still feel connected. Uh, to bring this around in light of this particular story, uh, this narrative we're wrestling with even in culture right now, but how we view our enemies, how we view people that we think are other in some way. What if, what if we need them? What if we need those people even that we perceive of as being enemies of the cross? Not that they need us, but that we need them because they are the means by which God sanctifies, transforms, shapes our own hearts and lives. Do, 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 do we have the guts to really to really believe that? That, that God has a purpose for us, even for the sake of our enemies. I've thrown a lot of stuff out there. Uh, but let me kind of try to land the plane in the last couple minutes kind of this way. The kingdom of God established in Christ is a peaceable kingdom, and it's a kingdom of peace. I'll recap just a bit of what I said about Revelation, because I know that's a lot to unpack. Revelation tells a story through metaphorical terms about how God overcomes the forces of sin, death, hell, and the grave 
through his own sacrifice on Calvary. That's the story that it tells. God wins through the cross. And if you read Revelation carefully and you read it through that lens, you'll see this at every turn over and over again, is that every scene seems to come around to reinforce this point. And in fact, nobody likes this part. I sure don't. But the call of the book of Revelation is that those of us who are in Christ, um, we overcome that we overcome the world, Revelation says, through the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and here's the phrase nobody wants to hear, loving not our own lives, even unto death. See, the Christians that are described in the book of Revelation are, and I'm quoting Revelation 13 here, I think, they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so the message of Revelation is, follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, Richard Bauckham in his great commentary on Revelation says that whatever the Lamb does in the book of Revelation is what God is doing. <laughs> so what the lamb does is what God does. Wow. What is the lamb doing? Laying down his life. What's the call on us as the people of God? To lay down our own lives alongside Christ. That's, that's our call. To follow Jesus is to join him in laying down our own lives. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong here because somebody can say this, but Jesus already sacrificed his life for us. We're not talking about some kind of a divine sacrifice here. In the same way that Christ emptied himself. Philippians 2, the kenosis, the way that Christ self-emptied on our behalf. Now we're called to join Christ in emptying our own selves for the sake of our enemies. That's what we saw Christ doing. That's what we saw the lamb doing. So that's now what we're called to do, to lay down our own lives. I talk so much about Sister Margaret Gaines. That was the lesson of her life to me as this church of God, classical Pentecostal woman, 19 years old, who goes to the Middle East and gives her life to be a missionary. The way that she laid down her life for her people there. That's that's that she died a couple months ago, and I'm just thinking about her all the time these days, her life and her legacy and her witness and what that means to me. You know, the way that that's a lot of what shaped my own understanding of 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 end times and eschatology and all of that was was through watching her work and witness and wrestling with what that's supposed to look like in my own life. Because here's the truth, guys. I've moved um I've moved considerably on a lot of things, y'all. I've changed a lot in my theology, but no matter where I am, I, I'm still going to have a, a new enemy. The enemy might shift. The people who I think are wrong or who are other to me might shift. But you know what? At every stage, God's called me to bless those enemies. God's called me now to lay down my life for these people. So that's the thing that I hate, but it's true. Whoever it is I don't like the most inevitably are going to be the people I'm most called to. <laughs> the folks that have the most hard time loving, that's going to be the folks, you know? I, because of some of my experiences in the Middle East, I don't have a hard time loving my Muslim neighbors because I think through the example of people like Sister Gaines and wonderful Muslim friends, that, that part comes almost natural to me now. Now I'm at a place in my life to where I've moved so far to where it's harder for me to love religious people. And I keep wanting God to, to tell me it's okay to be a Pharisee towards the Pharisees. I keep want God to like tell, to vindicate me and say, it's all right to be a scribe to the scribes. You can be mean to them. You can bully them and look down on them, but, but I, I'm not given permission to do that. Right. You know, we love to use the example of how Jesus is kind of hard on the scribes and Pharisees and other people want to bring up, well, you know, what about Jesus when he's cleansing the temple problem with that metaphor and basically anything that we say or do is that we aren't Jesus. <laughs> I get indignant about a lot of things, but I'm telling you folks, I'm, I'm very, I'm very suspect even my own righteous indignation. I am often indignant. My indignation is very rarely righteous. There's a whole lot of other things going there that don't have anything to do with righteousness. So I don't, I don't trust my anger in that way. You know, it was, my prayer has to constantly be for God to make me tender and to keep me tender and to, to teach me how to love, you know, the, the, the people who I view as other in some way now. 
Good grief. I have said a lot of things, you guys. Um, maybe I'll, I'll try to close out this way. Don't y'all like how even when I'm doing a Facebook or Instagram live, it's just like my sermons. I never really know exactly how to end, but I really do want to challenge you with this. I wonder, I just wonder what it would look like for you to prayerfully examine. And I, and I do put all this out for examination. I don't claim to be, I don't claim to be a prophet. I don't claim to be, um, have some special anointing or inspiration of whatever else. Anything that I've said, I would want you to pray about to seek. But I would encourage you to really wrestle with some of these things. And if and if some of this has um, has triggered some angst or some turmoil, and you don't know quite what to do with some of this, I would encourage you to really take that in prayer. What to ask the Lord what this is supposed to mean for you? Because here's my concern, guys, and this is why I take all this uh, so very seriously. As much as we don't want to believe this is true. Um, started to say this in a cleaner way, but let me say it how I really think it. Bad theology kills. I really believe that. Eschatology kills. I, I think that sincere, misguided ideas about the end of the world often means that in real life on the ground, we kind of tend to try to self-fulfill certain kind of prophecies. Because if we think, once again, that certain things need to happen, uh, certain kind of, need to, of violence need to happen on the ground in order for God to accomplish his purposes in the world, then inevitably we'll kind of look for ways to fill that in. So instead of being peacemakers, remember, core foundation in the teaching of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers. Instead of being peacemakers, we become warmongers in a way. You know, and, and, and that, that's actually one of the things most, if I'm honest, that frustrates me sometimes at... Um, in the evangelical church, the kind of blind, uncritical support of Israel as a nation state. Again, not to say Israel doesn't have a right to exist. I'm not trying to get people to go from being pro-Israeli to pro-Palestinian. That's awful. No, I want, I, I truly do want peace in that part of the world. And I want to see the kingdom rule of God, his reign established in that part of the world. You know, I care about peace on all sides. But part of what can frustrate me about that sometimes is I feel like the way that sometimes Christians will love Jews, Jewish people in the Middle East, is they actually love them kind of as chess pieces on a chessboard. Uh, we, we love them insofar that if we can get the script to move along in the right way, we think again that Jesus is going to come and snatch us up out of the mess, right? That's where, that's where the story is really going. And I would just question even that. Is, is that really what it means to love our Jewish neighbors? Is that what it needs, means to love our Israeli friends? It would seem that if we really love them and we really love our Palestinian brothers and sisters, we really want to see the kingdom rule and reign of God established on all sides of this, that what we would want for everyone is peace. What we would pray for is peace. What we would work for is peace. That when there's violence and terror in the world, that we don't celebrate that as some kind of personal victory because we think it means that God's going to rescue us out faster. But rather, we grieve and we groan and we sigh. Think about the language of Romans 8 there, that creation itself is groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God. We enter into that, that, that grieving. To, to pray in the spirit is to weep, to grieve, to mourn, to sigh, not to celebrate, but to have our hearts broken. That's what that looks like. Um, tell you what, since some of you are telling me to keep going and you can always tune out whenever you want to, I'll give you one more thing here because I think this is significant. I feel like I may have already pushed too many of you buttons, but a lot of you have dismissed me long before now, so that's fine. Um, but the last thing I want you to consider is this. Um, at the center of this conflict, I think, in these sort of contrasting worldviews, you know, in terms of how does God accomplish God's purposes in the world, 
because uh, how do we get so messed up? How do we get so mixed up here? How do we get to this place where if the prayer that Jesus has been praying for, or, I'm sorry, Jesus taught us to pray that we've been praying for 2000 years is that kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do we get to this place where in, instead of looking for the kingdom to come down and the new Jerusalem to come down, that there's such an emphasis on us escaping, kind of being snatched up, snatched out, whatever language you want to use. I, I, I want to say this in a way that I don't want to criticize particular people here. I know I did that drive-by way earlier, but I just, I, I don't want, this is not about personalities. This is to me, to, it, it really comes down to how we understand a particular text. There is a verse in Thessalonians, and it's a beautiful verse, uh, that talks about when the trumpet of God sounds, how uh, the dead in Christ will rise up to meet him in the air. And then those who are alive will go to meet them together. And that's, it's, it's a powerful image. It's a beautiful image. But I think here's where and how this image gets fundamentally misunderstood. Paul, who is a, uh, a Roman citizen and who's always very conscious of that Roman world and who often uses intentionally symbols and imagery from the Romans in a subversive way. I mean, even to call Jesus Lord, right? Well, the, the proclamation of the empire is that Caesar is Lord. This is why so many Christians uh, were, were being killed. This is why Christians were fed to the lions and burned at the stake. Was it because they were preaching that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of souls, but rather in a context in which the proclamation of the empire is that Caesar is Lord. They're saying Jesus is Lord, and it is a treasonous claim. So in the same way that Paul takes us that image of Caesar as Lord and subverts it to talk about Jesus and the kingdom of God subverts everything the empire is setting out to do. Thessalonians also uses a, a Roman, a, a Greek Roman image in a subversive way. The language that Paul uses there is very particular. And he uses the language in, 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 a, in a metaphorical way of what would happen when a conquering Roman hero would come back to town. And when they would come back to town after winning some great battle, the people would go outside the gates of the city to welcome the king. And when they welcomed the king, then there would be a, a processional where they would come into the city together, right? That's the point of that image. Now, if you understand what Paul is doing there, now apply this a little bit further. Is that, that catching away that happens in the air is the point that all the people of God go on a spaceship off somewhere far to another place? Or is it an image to talk about the very same thing that we speak of when we speak of the Lord's Prayer? The very same thing that we speak of when we speak of the prophecy in Isaiah that says, the day will come when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth the way the waters cover the sea. That What will happen is that God's people come to welcome the king and then we process back together into the city. New heaven and new earth, where now there is no distinction between heaven and earth. The rule and reign of God that originates in heaven is now fully established and realized on the earth. Is anybody hearing me preaching right now? The rule and reign of God is finally here. The kingdom has come down. The king has come to us. The end of the story is that the kingdom of God is fully established on the earth. The, and the, the king that is Jesus is established on the earth. It is good news. It is good news. See, that's the trouble with some of our gospel. It's just not good news enough yet. What, what, I mentioned that imagery a few minutes ago from Romans 8 about how creation itself is groaning and sighing for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. Tell me this. 
if all God plans to do with his creation is to simply burn it down, if there is no future except damnation and judgment, if that's all there is to look forward to, then why is it that the creation is sighing and groaning and crying out for this? Why would the creation be groaning and sighing for its own damnation? <laughs> well, again, I, I would say the creation is groaning and sighing because what God is coming to do is to restore and to redeem. What God is coming to do is to make right. What God is coming to do is not to bring retribution, but rather God is coming to redeem and to restore. A uh, couple more footnotes, you see, since some of y'all are um, graciously still hanging with me. Um, I think it's important to note here, because this is where some of this is getting murky. Whenever I talk about, you know, th this kind of good news, this kind of great hope, inevitably it, it begs questions about who will be saved in the end? Will everyone be saved? Are you teaching some kind of universalism or whatever? Here's my quick riff on that. And I, I can't do a whole talk about it tonight. It could be a whole thing for another time. You know, I, I, I personally am against any form of predeterminism, right? I don't believe in um, something like Calvin's double predestination where before time, uh, God decides, you know, everybody's going to go up or down. Don't believe in that. But I'm not really comfortable with universalism kind of the same spirit because I think God does honor human choice, right? God doesn't drag people kicking and screaming into some kind of bliss. I think ultimately we do get what we choose. Uh, I do believe that to be true. Um, man, there's a lot I can say about this. If, if you really want to get into these ideas, best thing you ever read, Von Balthasar, great, greatest Catholic theologian of the 20th century, I think. Von Balthasar wrote a, a great book called Dare We Hope That All Be Saved. Von, Von Balthasar's point is that as Christians, we should hope for the salvation of all. We should pray for the salvation of all. But uh, we're not assured salvation for all because that would be presumptuous. We hope for it. We pray for it. We believe the love of God is stronger than anything else, but we don't want to be presumptuous, right? So so this doesn't have anything to do with universalism, but I still think there has to be a way in which that the, 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 the gospel has to be good news for all created things. It still has to be good news. It still can't just be about burning it down. That's another thing, y'all, and I'm... <laughs> Thanks again for preaching with me and hanging out. See, because um, I know some of you, you like what I'm saying and still thinking, but I'm a little uneasy because I don't feel like I'm hearing enough about judgment. Uh, and what, what about the fire of God? I believe in the fire of God, y'all, but here's a, here's a secret. The fire of God does not destroy. The fire of God purifies. If nobody's told you that, the fire of God is not for the sake to destroy things. The fire of God purifies things. The fire of God isn't like our fire. My fire, our fire, is wildfire that destroys. God's fire is a fire that purifies. This is why I say once again, judgment is a thing to be welcomed and prayed for when you come to see that what judgment always is, is it's God graciously putting a mirror up to our faces to where after we, we, we do see our evil, we do see our selfishness, we see our greed, we see our wrong, and God graciously then gives us space to repent. That's what the judgment of God is about. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Judgment is not a thing to be afraid of. I think that about the world that we're living in right now, in which, again, it is apocalyptic time, and that so many things are being revealed. This is good news. Our hearts are being revealed. <laughs> we don't like some of the things that we see. Some of the things that we're seeing scare us, frighten us, and probably ought to, but we're given space to repent. We're able to see deep racial division and discord. We're able to see uh, poverty. We're able to see oppression in all kinds of forms. We're able to see 
um, the fruit of our own greed in the world. We're able to see our own self-destruction. Why? Because God is giving us space to repent because the judgment of God comes to restore, to reconcile, to make right. It's not a thing to be feared. It is a thing to be welcomed. When Jesus the King comes, the point is that he will, it will usher in the reign and rule of God to the world. That's the day we're praying for. That's the day that we're anticipating. And as people who follow this peaceful king, um, everything about what we do and who we are has to be conformed to the image of the king. So we, once again, we're adopting that same posture of love, of self-sacrifice. Um, not, not, not again, not loving our own lives, even unto death, but following this Jesus who is the king. Whatever the lamb does is what God does. So we follow the lamb wherever he goes. We're laying down our own lives, not for the sake of our friends, but for the sake of our enemies. I said this a couple of days ago on Twitter and this messed with some people, but I think I want to say it one more time here just because I'm having a good time, right? Any, even the good that God does for God's friends is ultimately for the sake of God's enemies. <laughs> okay, try that on for a minute. Even the good things that God does for his friends is ultimately for the sake of God's enemies. It's, it's always been for them. That's always been the movement of the story. That's always been where the story and Evelyn had to go. That full revelation of God, once again, because the, you know some of you can still get hung up on this. Well, what about the, this image of God in the Old Testament, that image of God in the Old Testament? Man, I love those stories. And there's a whole lot I could say about how I think violence function in the Old Testament. Love to talk about my friend Greg Boyd's work here a little bit. A lot of different directions I go, but let me keep it simple for right now. Um, there are so many things that the Old Testament has to teach us about God and the character of God, so many lessons to be applied. But let's not misunderstand th this one particular part. Only in the Gospels is the glory of God fully revealed. What we get in the Old Testament, uh, not unlike Moses himself when he's hiding on the mountain and the light comes past him, we get glimpses of the glory of God. But even this, y'all, even the glory of God in the Old Testament was always about his mercy. Dear Reformed friends who I love, and not all of you are the same way, but on some, some of my Reformed folks, this is where I, I love you, but I have sincere disagreement about some things. The glory of God even in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, was always located in God's mercy. You know, God's glory was not in God's bright shininess. God's glory was revealed in his mercy. The basis of God's glory is God's mercy, even in the Old Testament. So by the time we get to the New Testament, what we finally get, ooh, Paul's language right here, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, or in the language of Hebrews, he is the exact imprint of God, the image of the invisible God. Now God has been fully revealed. Other texts, whether you talk about the prophets, or you talk about the Torah, or you talk about wisdom literature, or you talk about epistles, all kinds of different genres of scripture answer lots of really wonderful questions, but it is only the gospel that answers this question. What is God like? What is God like? That question is only fully answered in the revelation of Jesus. It is in the person and presence of Jesus. I, I, I'm getting excited about this all over again, uh, like I've never heard it or thought about it before when I think about it all the time. But when those wonderful stories about Jesus that you love, when you see the way that Jesus relates to outsiders and outcasts, when you see how Jesus relates to the woman caught in adultery, when you see how Jesus relates to lepers and blind people, when you see Jesus sitting across this table eyeball to eyeball with sinners, we can see something like that and still buy into this crazy theology that God can't look directly at our sin. 
what the hell? Of course God looks at us directly in our sin because Jesus himself sits eyeball to eyeball with sinners. God is fully revealed in Christ. Whatever the lamb does, your hearts are making me think you're preaching with me right now. Whatever the lamb does is what God does. That Jesus that you love and that you see in all those stories, that Jesus who's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's who God is. That's who God has always been. Keep in mind that language I used from Revelation a little bit earlier. We heard the sound, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we look and we see it's been, the lion was actually the lamb all along. The lamb standing as if slaughtered. Jesus is the full revelation of God. There is not more. There is not extra. There, there's nothing else. There's nothing further. Jesus is the full revelation of God. God has already spoken his final world to, word to humanity. God has spoken his final word of judgment. And Jesus is that word. Jesus is God's word. Jesus is God's proclamation. The answer is why, in a sense, it's right. Like in Sunday school, when you ever, you know, it was the right answer to every question. Jesus. Well, actually, that's true. Ultimately, Jesus is God, God's response to any and every question. The word that God speaks ultimately is Jesus. And Jesus is the final word. And if I can punch this one more time as I'm being so preachy, th this same Jesus, that Jesus, that enemy blessing, self-sacrificing, pure Lamb of God is the same Jesus that will return to make things right. So that even his judgments will be just and kind and gentle and tender and good because that's who he is. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, just look at the character of the king and that is Jesus. I want to challenge you that in any and every aspect of your life to, to, to strive to, to, to conform your life, your teaching, your theology, to, to conform all of that to the character of the crucified God. If it doesn't look like Jesus, if it doesn't look like the lamb standing as if slaughtered, not good enough, man, not going to work. And, and don't do this business because a lot of us like to do this, right? If there's something about Jesus that we don't like, then we want to, you know, kind of, yeah, well, okay, so, so, cause here, here's what we'll do, right? Uh, Jesus tells us to bless our enemies. Well, I, you know, I, I hear that. But on the other hand, the judges, the enemies get killed. So I'm not having a, a, a Jesus kind of day. I'm having a judges kind of day. Where, you know, um, uh, I, I want Romans for me, but I choose Leviticus for them, right? We have, we have this option of wiggle room to kind of play fast and loose with text in the way. No, friends. Jesus is the prism through which all other scripture is to be read and interpreted. Jesus is the, Jesus is all. Jesus is everything. Instagram, I'm afraid I'm about to lose you. I've got a minute and 53 seconds. That's, that'll make me wind down. Facebook, I think you guys are good. Um, but do you hear what I'm saying? Uh, I, I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, that's right. It's, 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 all, it's all about Jesus. Um, so how we interpret the Old Testament through light of Jesus. Listen, and that will help some of you with your apocalyptic theology too. That's a trouble with a lot of folks is that they're reading the Gospels through the lens of Revelation, not Revelation through the lens of the Gospels. Can I beg you please to reverse that? The Gospels give us the full revelation of God who is in Christ. Read Revelation through that lens. If what you're assuming that you think you understand through the book of Revelation, does it conform with Jesus as revealed in the Gospels? Not good enough yet. If what you think you understand from the epistles does not yet conform to Jesus as revealed in the Gospels and on the cross, not good enough yet. Everything that we believe about who God is, who God has always been, who God will be in the future, all of that, 
everything is all wrapped up in Jesus. That's why um, so many of the New Testament writers, whenever they quote the Old Testament, they think everything's about Jesus because they're punch drunk in love with Jesus. They're consumed with Jesus. Um, all kinds of uh, things that, that, that Paul will quote from the Old Testament are madly out of context. And he's not apologetic about it because now he's seeing Jesus in every nook and cranny of every text, not just the ones that were properly messianic texts, because that's the kinds of people that we're supposed to be. No matter where we're reading in scripture, no matter how we're interpreting the world, we're seeing Jesus everywhere. Hey, Instagram, I love y'all. You are good folks. I have to say good night to you guys. I'll be on Facebook for a minute or two more, but thanks for hanging out with me and bearing with me as I get real preachy on a, what is it, a Wednesday night? Y'all still with me? Okay. So anyway, Facebook, uh, Jesus, Jesus, God's final word. That's it. That's what I'm trying to say. I know I've said a lot of things, but ultimately it's all really been about that. So I would challenge you to prayerfully think about all this, wrestle with it, wrestle with it in your own soul. Wonder what it might look like to start to think through some of these implications. I wonder how it might change how you see your enemies. I wonder how it might change how you think about the end of the world. I wonder how it might change how you're interpreting what's happening in the news. Uh, you know, the prophecy teachers used to say, talk about reading the Bible in one hand and uh, uh, the newspaper in the other. Uh, you know what, I'm really into the news, but sometimes let me, let me take it a step further. Put down the newspaper for a minute. <laughs> and how about you get your foundational view of God in Christ straight in your head? How about you grasp something of the character of God? Because if you misunderstand that God is fully revealed in Christ and God's fully revealed in the Lamb, then you're not gonna read the news right. So don't go back and forth. Ground this part first, who's Jesus? Who's Jesus to you? See, that's the question, right? Who is Jesus to you? Because I know that for those of you that have a real, live, authentic relationship with Jesus, I know that we've all got the same story. And that's that we are, we are broken, we are distorted, we are weak in so many ways. We are so deeply flawed. And yet he's loved us unconditionally. He's loved us so far beyond our uh, any capacity that we could have dreamed of before. He's been so, so much better than we could have asked or imagined. He has been unfathomably good to us. How can we not believe that that God is not going to be just as kind and merciful to the people that we don't like, the people that we hold responsible? Do we not really believe that that God who has been so generous and gracious to us in our brokenness and frailty won't be that, won't have that same heart and posture uh, towards our own enemies in the world. We've got to believe that. Y'all, at this point, I'm probably um, beating a dead horse, but I'm feeling good. Thanks for hanging with me. Love you guys. Hope you have a good night. And just uh, in, in case you, you missed this part, Jesus, you guys, Jesus, full revelation of God is Jesus. Everything about your theology, everything about your life, conformity to the image of Jesus, the crucified God, is what we are going for. Thank you, friends. I love y'all. I'll be in touch soon. Have a good night. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.